Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. Hi, everybody. Good Wednesday evening and welcome to Padres Social Hour. We got a fun one for you tonight. Drew Pomerantz, the Padre left-hander, going to stop by in a little bit. I will be joined in just a moment by both uh, Bob Scanlon and Ben Higgins. Uh, we'll talk uh, baseball, have some fun, and uh, hopefully help pass the next hour or so for you as we all kind of hang out and uh, try and uh, get through quarantine life as sane as possible. Uh, one Padre business note to pass along right at the top here. I, I know a lot of fans have been waiting a lot of weeks at this point for some information about ticket refunds uh, as it relates to games that were scheduled to have been played in March and in April. Uh, Major League Baseball finally kind of loosened the reins a little bit in the last day or so, allowing the teams uh, to put their policies uh, forward publicly. Padres did that today. Uh, you can find that information on the web, on social media. Uh, we'll talk to Padres uh, president of business operations, Eric Grubner, on the show tomorrow, and he can get into some more details about all of that. Uh, but refunds are available. You can also kind of credit forward to next year, particularly if you're a season ticket member. Uh, they've got some other incentive type stuff uh, in there for you. But again, uh, check that out on the web. Uh, get all the information and uh, very glad to be able to pass along some info as it relates uh, to ticket policies, refunds, everything like that. Obviously, an extraordinarily kind of complex and unprecedented thing going on right now. Uh, but uh, I know a lot of fans have been looking for that. So there you go. All right. Mentioned Bob Scanlon is here. Ben Higgins is here. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Great to see you. And Scans has gone full bad news bears right out of the gate here. Very impressive. I had to, guys. I, I have to have my baseball fixed some way, somehow. And what better way than to honor with one of the greatest baseball movies of all time? Maybe a little bit before your guys' era. But the Bad News Bears got number uh, number three going with Kelly Lee because we all got to do Rebels right now, right? Find, find a different way of getting things done. I like it. Is that is that the full authentic jersey with Chico's bail bonds on the back? It, it, it would be. Uh, you <laughs> we got Chigo's bail bonds there. And I, I need to thank Brian. He's one of the ushers at Petco Park. The, the ushers at Petco are so amazing. I talk to fans all the time. And of course, we have daily interaction with them. They do such an amazing job of making the fans feel welcome and being a part of the, the Petco experience. But Brian uh, has, has been a friend of mine for many years. He, he got this jersey for me. So, Brian, thank you so much for this jersey. I love it. And it, it gives me a chance to enjoy some baseball spirit today. So, I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. I like it. Ben, did you ever have uh, like a little league sponsor in any sport that was as hilarious as a bail bondsman? I never did, but I didn't realize that we were going to be bringing all of our uh, bad news bears memorabilia. Hold on one second. Okay. <laughs> so Jesse, is there, is there a, a bear that you associate with from the original cast? I mean, it's probably just a bad look, but it, here's it's, my uh, autographed Walter Matthau picture to me <laughs> with his dog puffs right there. Very cool. My What's favorite movie. I got to meet him in person. <laughs> that is very <laughs> cool. Very cool. So Ben, I was asking Jesse, is there is there a certain bad news bear member of the roster that you associated with particularly? It was always the coach. I was a cranky old man. He's been a little kid. It's sad to say, uh, but that's the case. But I might have Chico's bail bonds beat. This is a true story. I think it was Fall Ball '92 uh, in the uh, Boca Raton Little League uh, back east in Florida. And we didn't have like regular teammates. You didn't get to be the Padres or the Yankees or the Mets or anything like that. Most of the time, at least there were a couple of teams that were, it was just the full sponsor on the front of the, uh, of the Jersey. And we had a like funeral home one year. 
10 year olds. I remember being jealous of the teams that had like the pizza parlor or the sandwich job. And I always used to have like the auto mechanic. I'm going, I'm, I'm 11. That does no, that does nothing for me. There's nothing. Yeah. So do you guys have a black stripe on the arm or anything? <laughs> we should have. As I was also randomly the best team we were ever on. So you couldn't bury us alive or anything like that. But uh, nice. that was the case. Anyway, good stuff with Chico's bail bonds and, and bad news bears. Uh, every day on the show, in some way, shape, or form, at least in the last week or so, it seems we've had some version of some plan to pass along. Uh, when it comes to baseball, we talked a lot yesterday about that three-division alignment uh, that came out via Bob Nightingale of USA Today, how you'd have a West, a Central, and an East. You would play exclusively against your division in the regular season to kind of limit travel as much as possible. We threw a little bit of water on it and said, hey, look, it's one of a, a million plans that's being kicked around right now. Uh, and one thing that MLB has kind of been consistent in their messaging has been that, hey, look, we're going to follow the lead of the, the medical experts here. You know, we're, we're putting our ideas together, our contingencies together. We want to be able to strike when the moment is right, but we have to follow health guidelines. And of course, perhaps uh, the most visible giver of health guidelines during this whole thing in this country has been Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, he was quoted in a story that came out late last night here uh, in the New York Times. And, and we'll kind of read what this is. And again, it's just a reminder that as much fun as it might be to argue about, you know, whether that plan is better than this plan, there's reality here. And he said, look, safety for the players and for the fans trumps everything. I assume no pun intended. If you can't guarantee safety, then unfortunately, you're going to have to bite the bullet and say we may have to go without this sport for this season. If we let our desire to prematurely get back to normal, we can only get ourselves right back in the same hole we were a few weeks ago. He says that any resumption of play must be gradual. It must be careful. We have to be fully ready for it. He's a huge baseball fan, by the way. He said, I would love to be able to have all sports back. But as a health official and a physician and a scientist, I have to say right now, when you look at the country, we're not ready for that yet. Now, not trying to go full doom and gloom or anything, uh, because we could be ready. Who knows, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But Ben, it's just like another one of these reminders that we got to probably pump the brakes a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's it's becoming more and more clear that if we do get some sort of baseball back, at least initially, there's, there's not going to be any fans for quite a while, especially here in California. I mean, I will take any baseball I can get, even if it doesn't start until later in the summer after the 4th of July. Even if we don't get to go to Petco Park, if I can just see a little bit of baseball on television at some point this year, I'm going to consider myself uh, very happy and very fortunate. Bob, have any of these uh, plans caught your eye in terms of perhaps realism? Realism, you know, I mean, as a player, as a broadcaster, someone who's been around the game uh, for a long time as a pro in different ways. Uh, what are you making of what we've been hearing? You know, I think this is consistent, Jesse, and Ben, with what we've seen all along, which is we don't know really what's going to happen at this point. And I find it really interesting because I think it was just last week, Jesse, as you mentioned, that we were looking at Fauci saying what a great baseball fan he was and how encouraged he was that we were going to be able to play some baseball. And there was this surge of optimism. And I remember at that time we couched it a little bit saying, remember, he's a fan. He's speaking from a fan's perspective right now. He loves the Washington Nationals. He wants to see his World Series championship team get back on the field. So I think we're getting whipsawed a little bit here now because now it's the other extreme where he's saying this is really going to be difficult to do. I don't think we have all the answers. Obviously, nobody has all the answers at this point. What I do find encouraging, though, is that MLB is trying to be as creative as possible in trying to find various solutions. We heard about the All Arizona League. We heard about the Arizona Florida League. Now we're hearing about the trifecta, including Texas in some sort of a 
a conglomeration of getting these these uh, teams back on the field so that we can play in some fashion. But, you know, at least they're trying to be creative about it. But the other thing that Fauci mentioned, and I think this is interesting to note also, is that he's saying one of the big things is we need to be able to test. And that makes sense, not only for the fans' sake, but also for the players' sake. And that's something that I don't know that we as a nation have fully been able to get under control yet. We've seen other countries like South Korea and some of the other countries have tests that are quick and dependable. And it seems like the CDC has still had some challenges getting that and getting it mass so that they're able to do the testing that they're going to need to do, Jesse. So from a medical standpoint, I think when we see that, now we can start getting serious about what's the next step. No, I think you're exactly right. And in fairness to baseball, with all these different plans coming out, there are always caveats attached in the articles. And that's probably the one we've heard more than anything else. Not only do you have to have testing available for everybody in the baseball bubble or the baseball universe, but you have to make sure you're in a situation where you're not diverting those resources from the public at large in the communities in which these games are being played, because that's obviously a, a terrible look. Uh, so, Ben, can you create a test for me? I guess is what I'm I guess not. I mean, just remember, every, every one of these stories that we've all, all seen all start with the same phrase. Officials are discussing. Yeah, baseball officials are discussing. I'm glad they're talking. They should be talking. That's what we're kind of all doing is formulating plans. And the more plans, uh, the more likely one of them is one that might work. You know, the first plan that came out, the Arizona Biodome, uh, all of a sudden we heard from players like Mike Trout who went, I don't know that I can be quarantined in Arizona for three months. My wife is pregnant. I'm going to have to see my family. So, you know, new trial balloons get floated. Uh, this one would involve, you know, teams possibly staying in their home cities with their families. That's probably more appealing, but I'd imagine they're still fine tuning and um, you know, tweaking the little little things that that could make this work later in the in this year. Yeah, and certainly as we've talked a lot about on this show, all eyes on both uh, Taiwan and the CPBL and on South Korea and the KBO to see how uh, they're progressing. Uh, that CPBL is underway. I believe opening day in the KBO is on May fifth. Uh, we're big KT Wiz fans around here now. By the way, I'm going to continue to push that. And uh, the the good thing I guess is all right. There's a model there. Like let's see how it works. But the other side of that is the number of variables is infinite, it seems like, and different size countries and different medical situations and just different testing capabilities. It's a lot more complicated, Bob, as we've discussed than just saying, hey, look, they, they made it work in Korea. Therefore, we can make it work here. Exactly. And again, going back to last week, one of the things that we talked about also is just the structure of those leagues in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of what power does ownership have versus their need to consult with, with the players. And I think Major League Baseball is as strong as any in the world in terms of the players having a say of what goes on in the field, the working conditions, what's going to happen. So it's not just a group of owners just saying, OK, we're going to get this thing going and players are going to start playing. And I've experienced that in winter ball in both Venezuela and Mexico and Dominican Republic, where basically you're a player and you do whatever they tell you to do. It's a little bit different here in the United States because of the strength of the Players Association. And I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm just saying it. we're talking about the very various things that need to fall into place. There's got to be some negotiation that goes on with that as well. The good thing is, as we know, everybody wants to get back on the field. So hopefully there's some collaboration between both sides. Uh, and, and that doesn't become a stumbling block in terms of, hey, everybody wants to get back on the field. Let's figure out the best way to do this so that the season is significant. It's providing some entertainment for the fans. It has some meaning to it, but also that it's still safe. And I think that's what everyone's still striving for. Yeah, there's definitely motivation from all sides to get some games in, yeah. what those games look like and how realistic it is, I guess, uh, would be the billion dollar questions uh, for MLB and everybody else. Ben mentioned a little while ago, uh, probably no fans, certainly not at the beginning. So you have to get creative, perhaps, uh, about how to do that. You look over to Germany, check this out. 
And uh, one of the ways they're trying to fill the stands uh, is uh, to raise some money for a good cause. Pretty cool. Uh, one of the teams in the Bundesliga, the big soccer league in Germany, offering fans the opportunity to put a cutout of themselves in the stands uh, for 20 bucks. And uh, that money going to local charities. From a visual standpoint, like for television, this is going to look a lot better than empty seats. I think this is a brilliant idea, Ben. I Honestly, I think it's a little creepy. <laughs> I'm glad it's for a good cause. and But just kind of seeing those empty faces staring back at me the entire time, I, I might start to get creeped out a little bit. I do think there's an intriguing possibility, though, if you, you did it here in San Diego, you could have an entire section of Padres Twitter just all sitting back there. We'd see all of them, Geekster and Friar Phil and everyone. We could just get cutouts of all of them, and they can meet up in the you know the fourth inning like they always do. I think this is really fun. And and if you're that soccer team, you go back to the 1900s when that team was first formed and you come back as Wilhelm II or Otto von Bismarck or something like that. So you could actually present yourself as your alter ego. You don't have to be yourself at the game. You could be somebody else. That, that could be kind of fun. Yeah, I think it'd be like a, a neat way. You know, you get your family in there together. You get a nice picture of it. You hang it up on your wall. And uh, what a memento of what a year 2020 was. So I thought that was pretty cool. And like I said, for a good cause. But yeah, I, I can see Ben's point. Like if you're a player and you're sort of used to being in a crowd with uh, three-dimensional human beings, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you step off the rubber and you look towards third base and you're bugged <laughs> out by these dead-eyed cardboard cutouts. Uh, it might be, might be a little weird. That's fair. That's fair. I have an idea also with this. How about if a foul ball hits your cutout a donation goes to your favorite charity for whatever amount they decide upon. And that way you're cheering for your guy to be in a good spot to get a foul ball. Hit him, hit him the ball and they send it to you in the mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dump it in uh, some Purell and uh, stick it uh, out to the post office. That's pretty good <laughs> stuff. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've done to help occupy ourselves in the last couple of weeks is uh, just enjoy Fernando Tatis Jr. playing video games. That's probably an odd sounding sentence if you went back like six months, but it's been a very big part of how a lot of us, I think, as Padre fans have stayed sane. Uh, they did with MLB The Show 20, this players league, having uh, 30 teams, uh, 30 players from all one from each team representing their club and playing video games against each other. Uh, Fernando's time has now come and gone in the players league, uh, but boy, did he entertain uh, so a couple of our uh, behind-the-scenes folks did an excellent job putting together the best of Fernando Tatis Jr. Throw first Padres history no header. 
Time to go up. Swing. Let's go! Nadie es más rápido que yo. I'm too fast, man. Even in the, even in the video game, bro. Sorry about it. Fernando Tatis Jr. having a great time and doing a wonderful job entertaining all of us. And uh, well done, man. Well done, Fernando Tatis Jr. Bringing a little bit of that energy and excitement to the virtual world, which we uh, certainly appreciate. They did set up awards, guys, uh, for all of this. I guess at MLB Gaming is now like an official account on Twitter. Uh, so they have a bunch of different categories and go out there and vote. Uh, one of the categories they did was most entertaining streamer and you just got a little bit of a taste obviously of just how entertaining he was right there uh but how about this bob they did not have fernando as an option for most entertaining what's going on not even an option jesse that's disrespectful i don't understand how that can possibly happen how can you not be a candidate when he's a guy that had seven home runs he's got the mochalo going and he's calling his home runs like a latin american soccer broadcaster Right? I mean, he's got to be a contestant. Ben, how does this happen? Plus, I love the uh, the Latin infusion of the nickname, the goat. He's the goat. goat. He is the goat. I love that for Fernando. I may have start using that. Just call him the, the goat. Cassidale <laughs> caught that yesterday. And, uh, yeah, we, we said it like 300 times on yesterday's show and never once sounded as cool as he does saying it. It's funny how that happens. Uh, Fernando's that kind of guy. Uh, but I mean, look, we, we've said it a million times. It, it's worth going over again, though, Bob, like the energy and the excitement that he brings to the video game is very reminiscent of what we saw on the field last year. And it meant a lot to all of us around the club and to all the Padre fans. That's what's so cool about it, isn't it? It's not as though he's so stoic at the ballpark. And then all of a sudden we're seeing this flash of, oh, he could be an exciting player when he's at home playing on the video game with his friends. No, that's the way this kid is all the time. And that's what's so fun. Look. In my, my seat at the ballpark every day, I'm next to the dugout, and I watch the players running out of the dugout, you know, 10 minutes before the game to do their pregame stretch and, and to get themselves ready for first pitch. And one of the most exciting moments for me is watching Fernando Tatis Jr. make that leap out of the dugout. He's like a gazelle. He bounds out of there. And everybody in the dugout, all his teammates are watching him. They're seeing the dust flying off of his spikes as he's running out to the outfield. He brings energy as soon as he steps foot on the field. He brought it to this game as well. And he's one of the reasons that I think we're all so excited to see some sort of baseball here in 2020. This kid's electric and he just brings out the life in everybody. I want to see him do other things like, um, you know, go to the ATM and take money out or just brush his teeth. Just the celebrations of everyday occurrences for Fernando Tetis Jr. <laughs> I would watch that. It's a good bit. You know, maybe we can we can have Nikki reach out and, and see if he'll be able to do that for us. Just kind of like take us around his house and be like, all right, I'm going to brush my teeth. OK, I'm going to put my feet up, watch some TV. It would certainly be uh, a lot more entertaining than, unfortunately, a lot of else uh, other things that are on television right now. We miss Fernando. We miss the Padres. We miss baseball. And uh, hopefully soon. All right. Obviously, with the uh, kind of news being slow in the world of sports, a lot of the different websites, TV shows, things like what we do, all trying to come up with different topics, different things to argue about and uh, different ideas. And of course, in baseball, anytime you stir up the possibility of great change, it's going to kind of hit the hornet's nest a little bit. Uh, you just even mentioned the designated hitter coming to the National League, and you can have a, a conversation all day about that. This one in the last week or so was part of an article on The Athletic, uh, and it caught our eyes a little bit. And the, the theory, I guess, or the thing they wanted to test was, if you had ties in baseball, how would it actually impact things in terms of the final standings? And they actually went back 
And they created a system not unlike hockey or soccer, where you get points in the standings uh, for wins and ties and not for losses. So this is the way the NL West would have shaken out a year ago by a points system. Really not too much of a difference. Padres and Rockies flip-flop spots. That's really it. So the Padres would have finished fourth, even though they had one fewer victory uh, than Colorado did last year uh, because the Padres, I I guess, had the ties. It balances out. I'm not going to do the math uh, right here, but um, it it doesn't really change much at all. And you go through the whole thing from last year, and they did this in the story. Again, that one's a difference, right? The Brewers are not a wild card contender. Rather, with 89 wins, they finish ahead of the Cardinals by one point. Uh, because they get credit for ties. And I think for the purposes of this, they said a tie was uh, they let it go 10 innings or 11, I forget. But either way, you kind of get the general gist. Uh, The NL East looks about the same. Nothing much changes there. One of the more interesting ones, though, from the last couple of years, they realized was, I guess, two years ago, uh, I believe with the National League uh, West and the Rockies would have actually won the division. Remember, they had the tiebreaker game or the the wildcard playoff game. And because of the quote-unquote ties, Uh, The Rockies had fewer ties than the Dodgers, and so they would have actually won the division two years ago. Now, this is obviously a complicated thing mathematically, but I guess the idea was and the theory goes that, hey, you're not going to be running these pitching staffs into the ground if you're calling a tie after nine innings or after 10 innings. And look, it doesn't really change all that much at the end of the day, or at least it wouldn't have last year. Bob, does this make your head explode? Yes. Did you see the steam coming out of my ears, Jesse? Is that why you came to me first? You want to I, be do. I do. I know you. Yeah. I instantaneously just imploded on the screen here. Yes, I, I, I am not a fan of this. Now, I'm trying not to be the old curmudgeon guy, but the bottom line is, really, guys, when I came to the ballpark every day for 20 years as a professional, I came to the ballpark with one thing in mind. That was to win a baseball game. Not almost win a baseball game, not tie a baseball game, but to win the game. And I, I, I don't want to see that go away. This almost feels like we're going to just start handing out the participation awards to everybody. It's like, it's okay, guys. You went out there and you played hard and you tied. At least you, you didn't lose. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't like the way this is going. I don't like the, the, the premise behind it. I don't like the theology behind it. And also, I think it's going to change a lot of things. And you know how protective I am and how much I love starting pitching and the importance of having a guy that can go out there and go seven or eight innings well, if you don't have to worry about going extra innings, then the starting pitching, again, is going to be diluted. It's not going to be as important that you have starters that can go deep into games because you're really not going to have to worry about your bullpen getting burned up in extra inning games, especially games that take place in Colorado. So I, I'm against this. Uh, I, I don't want to see it happen. The other thing is, guys, it's what's going to happen is we're going to start seeing a lot more ties because there will be a change. If you're the visiting team, the theory is, hey, we're going to play to win. Well, I don't know. Maybe we don't play to win anymore. Maybe now we play to tie. Now, if you've got two teams on the field playing to tie, you're going to have a lot more ties. That sounds boring to me. Ben, are you a fan of this? Well, I think there's some intriguing strategy questions that you know could be brought up, just like you were talking about uh, the usage of closers later in the game in a tie game. You don't, you don't have to save them for extra innings, so you might see some of the better players on the field earlier as opposed to them just waiting and waiting in the bullpen and maybe never getting into the game. Um you know, a little certainty about when, you know, a lot of kids go to the ballpark and get to go home. You're not going to be there for five hours in a 17 inning game. I understand some of the reasons why you would talk about this and discuss it. It's traditional in soccer, uh, in hockey, they uh, used to have ties and they went to shootouts, of course. But ultimately, I, to me, my favorite thing about a baseball game is a walk-off win. And when you go to extra innings, you've got at least a 50% chance 
of seeing one if the home team wins. And to have that ripped away just because the game ended after 10 or 11 in a tie, ultimately, to me, would be more disappointing than any advantage that it would probably create or, uh, you know, any speed to the game that it would create. So, no, Bob, I agree with you. Um, not in favor of ties in Major League Baseball. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you guys both. And uh, you saw the comment from from Glenn right there. He makes a fair point. Like, all right, maybe this would be the year if we are able to play some games in 2020. You mess with it. We're all ready, worried a little bit about pitchers' arms and having to come back after this odd layoff and everything like that. So I, I'm generally, I think, in favor of do whatever you want in 2020 because it's going to be a goofy situation regardless. I, I guess the best argument you could ever make for ties in baseball would be the one that that story was trying to make, which is that, hey, look, it doesn't really change much at the end of the day. But as you guys both pointed out, it, it does change the game. It does change the strategy. It does change the excitement. And I thought Geekster made a good point as well. It is boring going to a tie game at the end of the day. You leave very unfulfilled feeling uh, having seen a tie. And yeah, it is part of the soccer culture. And so it is like, but that's the way soccer has been played forever uh, when it comes to league games. So you sort of are just accepting to it. It's not the way baseball's ever been played. You know me, guys, I'm very progressive when it comes to rules and trying out new things. Uh, this this doesn't really do it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm all ears when it comes to maybe finding other ways uh, to come to a conclusion. But for me, you got to get to a conclusion. A tie doesn't do it. Jesse, this is one of the few times I think that you're not for the proposed change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I. The tie, it just doesn't like I, I worked a couple seasons in hockey before the shootout came back or actually I think it was one year before the shootout came back. And then after the lockout, the shootout uh, became a part of it. And and like leaving the arena after a tie, it's just like the most blah feeling ever. It really is. And as you said, I think, you know, they, they tried to make their point in the article about, hey, the standings don't change that much. But you're right. Once teams know what's out there, they're going to start playing for the tie. They're going to get more conservative. You know, they're not going to be taking risks trying to go ahead or anything like that. So you're probably going to end up with far more ties than you would have in sort of the hypothetical situation they, they put together last year. So it, it it's as a fan to me, one of like the ultimate letdowns, you know, leaving a game that doesn't have that. You know, the NFL has ties after overtime, but like it happens once every other year, basically, you know, in the whole league. So that's that's fine. Plus, no one wants to hear broadcasters going to that old, tired, kissing your sister expression at the end of every single tie in Major League Baseball. Question for you guys. Would you be open-minded to having a runner on second base to start the inning to try to reduce the number of extra innings? Because I think back to that game in 2008 where the Padres played a 21-inning game against the Rockies. We were up all night long. And not only was that game long, but at the same time, I, I'll never forget what happened to Tony Clark in that game. He played the entire game. And at that point in his career, I don't know that he ever recovered from that. So, I don't know. Would you guys be open to something like that to, to at least have a win or a loss, maybe reduce the number of innings played? You still get the possibility of the walk-offs then. I mean, even more of a possibility of seeing one earlier in the night. Um, I don't know. The, getting on base is such an important skill in the game, though, to give a team – a team may have, you know, an ace of a bullpen and it's so hard to get on base against them, but you give that free spot on second and then all of a sudden you bunt them over, you fly ball them in and and that's the end of the game right there. It seems like you didn't you didn't earn that necessarily. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of the studies that have been done on that, too, in the leagues and international play where it's occurred, that's what often happens. There's a bunt, 
two intentional walks. And it's like, all right, it becomes kind of formulaic. And as you said, kind of unspontaneous. And, and that's not what anybody's going for. I'm definitely in favor of kicking around ideas of ways to shorten games. Because you're right, Bob. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but those marathon games, whether they're 16 innings or 18 innings, they can cripple a team's pitching staff for days afterwards. You talk about the Tony Clark example. That's a famous one. And it really does get a little bit goofy at the end. The last one I remember the Padres playing that was like exceptionally long, I think it was two years ago in Arizona. Uh, and Myers ends up hitting what turns out to be the game-winning home run against a position player. Uh, and it's like, you know, that's, that's a little bit goofy anyway. So maybe we can do something uh, to try and close the gap. The one that's interesting to me that's been floated out there at times would be that once you get to, let's say, the 11th or the 12th, whatever inning you want to say, um, the manager can say, all right, I'm setting my number three hitter out there to start the inning. And you go three, four, five or two, three, four, one, two, three, whatever you want. You don't have to pick up your batting order where you last left off. And, and that theoretically, I guess, would would you know create some action. And, you know, your relief pitcher having to face Mike Trout or your best hitter, whoever it might be, Machado and Tatis again. I think would be kind of a fun thing. And and what people always say is, hey, you look at the other sports and you get into an overtime situation or a close and late situation. You know, the, the ball is in the best hands of the best players. LeBron is getting the ball. Michael Jordan was getting the ball. Kobe was getting the ball. And you sort of try and borrow from that a little bit. Here's a crazy yeah. one for you. What if when you got to the 10th inning, instead of needing to get three outs, you had to get four outs, which made it obviously a lot easier to score when you have that extra out to work with. Plus, you know, we could see our first quadruple play in Major League yeah. Baseball history if the bases are loaded and you get everybody. No, nah, we're getting a little far-fetched now, guys. Sorry about that. <laughs> got to pull the plug on that one. <laughs> Bob, do you like anything with the batting out of order? You know, it, that's interesting. I think it would be great when you know that you've got a guy coming to the plate that's four for five that day and he's swinging the bat well. I just feel bad for the guy that's hitting behind him that's maybe over five that night with five punch outs and he's he's going up to the skipper going come on skip uh i'll buy you a steak dinner if you don't do this please i don't need to go over seven tonight <laughs> that's funny you know what's what's kind of interesting too just like in the big pictures we're talking about all of this and, and bob you and i have been having these conversations uh, on the air on and off for the last six seven years and ben obviously on your radio show you guys talk about this not that long ago having even something that is remotely close to this conversation would have been considered, you know, heretical, you know, in the world of baseball. It's, it's amazing how quickly and how far we've come that it's like we're not all, you know, going crazy, even having some version of this conversation. Because, again, not that long ago, Bob, people would just shut you down the minute you tried to talk about any of this stuff. No question about it. You're absolutely right, Jesse. And, and I claim responsibility for I would have been one of those people. I've, I've come a long way. I've become much more open to these ideas. And I don't believe in all of them, but I enjoy talking about them a lot more than I than I would have, say, 10 years ago. And I think this goes back to, again, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, all these different ideas that we hear MLB coming up with to try to get baseball going again. I don't know that we would have had this kind of creativity in the game in general. 10 or 15 years ago. So the fact that we have all these different ideas coming out, I think is a good sign of just sort of the creativity, the open-mindedness, the progressiveness that the game is willing to at least take a look at. And I think that's a good thing for everybody. I used to be dead set against the designated hitter ever coming to the National League. I was all about the strategy and the, the double switches and how they play the game. But even the last couple of years, I've started to, to soften and see the logic behind it and, and how it probably works for players and a lot of people to to bring it to both leagues and have uniform rules in both the, the National and American League. Sorry, Bob. Let's not get carried away now, Ben. I like that we're discussing these things, but <laughs> you've gone to the dark side on the designated hitter. You and I got to talk after I this. Know. 
<laughs> I, I, you know, I, like Ben, I came, grew up as a National League fan. You were just sort of taught, bred to hate the DH. Uh, and I, I don't know that I necessarily now think I like it, but I do feel that it's inevitable. So I've just sort of resigned myself to it. I've like surrendered to it. Like, I think it's going to happen at some point. So I've tried not to worry about it as much as I might have once. Stay strong, Jesse. Stay strong, man. Don't give in yet. I'll try, Skits. I'll try. <laughs> All right, it's interesting stuff, though, and fun conversation to have. It was uh, some some cool number crunching, I thought, in that article. And thank you guys uh, for indulging on that one. I'm sure we inflamed a couple of people, but that's uh, that's okay. Uh, obviously, a lot of talk lately about playing games uh, without fans and the very real possibility uh, that that could become something of a norm here in 2020. There, of course, uh, in modern and recent baseball history, is one example of that happening uh, in a real game without any fans in attendance. It was actually five years ago today. Obviously, a much different situation than a global pandemic, but great civil unrest in Baltimore uh, on a day that the White Sox and the Orioles were scheduled to play at Camden Yards. Uh, the Freddie Gray tragedy had just occurred in Baltimore. He'd lost his life while in police custody, and uh, the city was really having a lot of troubles uh, in the aftermath of that tragedy. So the two teams played a game without fans. Uh, and again, because it was on this date, a lot of coverage of that again today, including what I thought was a really great kind of you know, oral history article uh, in The Athletic about it. And, and reading that and hearing from the guys who played in the game, the guys who broadcast the game, Jerry Lane, who was the home plate umpire in that game, um, putting aside the social aspect of it and just the baseball part of it. I mean, to a man, it seemed, Bob, they were so uncomfortable with it from a baseball perspective. They were not enjoying it then. They didn't necessarily enjoy reminiscing about it now. Uh, and it's funny because we talk about like, hey, if you have to play without fans, you have to play without fans. But these guys were showing you, hey, that was just one game. And it was incredibly difficult as athletes to do it. It's so hard. And I know that we talk about players playing for the love of the game. And as a former player, I can tell you, we did. We do love the game. And that is why we want to play. And we want to compete no matter what is going on, whether there's 50,000 people in the stands or five, there's that competitive part of you. But at the same time, it would be a lie to say that the players don't also enjoy walking onto the field and looking up and seeing a bunch of people that are just as excited about this competition that's going to take place as they are. And it does fire you up. And whether you're at the home team and you love making the 50,000 fans in your ballpark go crazy and cheering and, and feeling good about everything and getting to their feet, or whether you're wearing your gray uniform that day and you want to silence that place and you want to show those fans, you know what, we're shutting you down. The, the tomahawk chop is not happening tonight, not while I'm on the mound. So there, there is a competitive part of it. But all that being said, I think guys also understand that there are just some new realities right now, and they're going to have to find a way to still find some enjoyment of it. The thing that I thought was really funny and that, that a lot of the players mentioned in, the, in some of those articles, Jesse, was that they had to sort of change how they handled themselves in their own dugouts because the other dugout could hear everything that you were saying, everything you were doing, how you were expressing yourself. And I think that's where guys became really even more uncomfortable, feeling like, I can't even celebrate the way I would normally want to do it. But this may be the new norm, at least for a little while. You know, it's strange because it's a completely different mindset to perform in front of people versus performing with no one there. For, for instance, what I do every day, both on television and radio, I know there's an audience out there, you know, watching on their TV sets at home or listening on their in their car on their way to work. I know they're out there, but I can't see them. All I can see is one or two other people with me in the studio and it's completely different now put me in front of a crowd and if i have to MC a dinner or even you know speak to a classroom full of fifth graders and my heart starts like racing a little bit it's i can see them there's i know in my head there's 
there's only a 50 people out there. I talk to, you know, 10, 20, 30 times that every single day, every time I talk. But seeing them out there makes a big difference to me. Now, maybe not to a seasoned professional athlete, but there is a very different mindset to performing anything in front of an audience uh, in front of you in person and one that's just somewhere out there, you know, beyond the cameras and uh, out there in cyberspace. Yeah, Bob and the crew, and I think it's it's interesting, and, and I think both of you guys have experienced this as well. Very, very smaller version of this, but when you're in a in a studio with cameras, and in the old days there was always a cameraman or a cameraman woman behind that camera working, and then all of a sudden technology changed, and you walk into the studio one day, and it's all robotic, and there's no people, and you're it was weird, even though there were three less people in there. We are social beings, and we like to be able to connect with people. And as players, part of it is you want to be able to share your excitement with the fans and what's going on. So I, I think this is a great example of just a reminder. We're social beings. We want to share things with other people. And uh, hopefully at some point we get a chance to share this. Now we may have to do it in a different way than we're used to doing it. But I'm hoping that at some point, maybe in July, we'll get a chance to start sharing the, the greatness of these players on the field again, and, and we can all enjoy it. Couple of the funny things that, that stood out from the guys. One, uh, Jerry Lane, the umpires, you know, first pitch of the game, it's a strike. And he went into his strike call verbally the way he would if there were 40,000 people there. And everybody like freaked out because it was so loud and like startling. And they said, whoa, okay. And he said, uh, you know, I realized right away I didn't need to be so loud and I needed to quiet myself out. Bob, like you said, you know, the, one team is hearing how the other team is positioning their infielders and outfielders because the coach is just screaming from the dugout like he normally would, but everybody could hear him. The guy said it was eerie too. You know, every foul ball that went into the stands would just rattle around the bleachers. There was nobody catching it or going after it or anything like that. Uh, just very, very awkward. The other thing they said is uh, we can all kind of uh, relate to, imagine, and probably cringe about was that they could hear every word the announcers were saying, which can get very, very dangerous, of course. Uh, you you often as an announcer are praying that nobody can hear you down in the dugout or the clubhouse. Uh, but of course, they could hear every single thing. And uh, Tyler Flowers, I think it was the White Sox catcher said he could hear Gary Thorne, who's very loud, uh, the, the great television announcer for the Orioles, you know, saying, hey, it's a curveball when the ball was still in the air before it even got to him. And he had to like try and tune all that out because it was kind of messing with his brain a little bit. Uh, Gary, by the way, who was working with Jim Palmer for this game uh, on Masson, uh, did have some fun late in the game. Uh, he said this was not planned or anything like that, but coming into the seventh inning, they wanted to have a little bit of fun. And so with uh, San Diego native Adam Jones at the plate, Gary went full golf announcer, and this is what happened. Because nobody's in the yard about the appropriate way to broadcast. So with Adam Jones coming up here in the seventh inning, Jones approach to the plate with Carol <laughs> delivering. Jones will whack the son of a gun to center field. That's very deep. It's deep, and it's off the base of the wall. He will head to second base. Adam Jones has a double, and that green jacket is well within reach, Jim. <laughs> I love Gary Thorne as much as I love any baseball announcer. Ben, you're Mr. Golf. That is outstanding. That was fantastic. I, I've i seen some uh, during the pandemic, some uh, golf announcing of just everyday items uh, in, in the house. It's it's phenomenal. It's so entertaining when you uh, put on the hush tones, with the reverence that's due. He got very lucky. Too, Bob. It was first pitch swinging because if that goes on to be like an eleven pitch at bat, it probably gets old pretty quickly. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, Adam Jones came through for Gary right there. No question. I, I was looking for somebody in the stands with the quiet police paddles. <laughs> it's just that was a great, great imitation of a golf broadcast. And, and to, to your point earlier too, Jesse, about 
the players hearing everything that goes on in the booth. Wasn't that one of the things that you were told right from the get-go? Broadcasting 101 is always assume that the players are going to eventually hear everything that you say, either through a wife or a friend or a family member. So we, yeah. we were always paying attention to that, I think. Yeah, it feels different second, third hand hours or a day later than it does in real time as it's happening. You don't want to get the look up from the dugout or anything like that if you're if you're questioning it. But real talk, though, guys, I mean, both of you work in television. Uh, if you were running the network, whatever network that was going to broadcast baseball, I want to hear from both of you. We'll start with Ben. How would you approach this from a production standpoint, from an audio standpoint, because of the awkwardness that, that would obviously arise? It's interesting. I think... Um the novelty, I mean, we saw what the numbers that the stay-at-home NFL draft got. I mean, record numbers last week. So there's a way to make, you know, content compelling, even when you're being socially distanced. I think the uh, Major League Baseball could take uh, take some cues from that. I, maybe some more features that you could throw in, you know, during the innings and stuff to fill a little bit of the dead moments. Because I think that's the kind of the worry. It's not that when the action's going on, you're, you know, guys chasing after a fly ball, diving after it. That's that's compelling without even fans in the stands. But those quiet moments in between pitches become really, really quiet uh, when the pitching coach goes out to the mound and it's just kind of silent. That those are the areas where you might be able to add some a little new stuff to the new wrinkles to the broadcast. Yeah, the thing I would be concerned about, and I on the first thought I'm thinking it would be fun to pipe in some fake fan noise, but at the same time, everybody gonna gonna know it's fake, right? And it, it's kind of unauthentic at that point. What I would probably try to do is, A, you can do more some creative stuff as you were talking about, Ben, with some more features that are going on, especially on the TV broadcast, where you don't have to announce every single pitch. You've got a little bit more variance to put in some features, maybe put in some music. But the other thing that I would like to hear, and I think fans always want to hear more of, is this dugout sounds and also miking up the players a little bit more. So the players would have to be careful about it because obviously there's a certain language that's used in the dugout and on the fields that we would not want to bring into people's homes. But at the same time, I remember as a kid and still as a fan, I'm always fascinated when there's a field mic on the guys, on the umpires, on the players, and I can hear what's what's going on at that moment. So that might be an interesting way to fill some of that dead air too. How, you know, how about, I would just mentioned the NFL draft. They had those uh, Zoom boxes with fans kind of, you could bring some of those onto the screen, maybe even, uh, some of the players' family watching in their living room, and you can put them like in the corner of the screen during the at-bat to get their reactions of what's going on. Hey, he just gets a home run, and look, his kids are going crazy. His wife is, is screaming. She just jumped off the couch. She's so excited. Uh, you can incorporate an element like that into a baseball broadcast. Don't look now, Jesse, but to your point earlier, we were talking about a lot of things that we never would have been talking about 10 or 15 years ago. So I love it. We're trying to be creative and our minds are open to things that all sit and down. Maybe when this all settles out, we, we come up with some things that make the broadcast actually funner or, or more inviting in some ways. Yeah, that kind of stuff is great. And and oftentimes, you know, I mentioned the hockey lockout a little while ago. I certainly didn't intend on referencing that twice, but that was one of the things coming out of the lockout. They said, hey, we got to make our broadcasts more fan friendly and the access that the TV and radio networks got uh, to the players and coaches in game uh, skyrocketed after that. And you could certainly see something uh, like that take place here with baseball. Uh, it would be very interesting. You know, like you said, I mean, there's a novelty factor that could wear off. Uh, what will these broadcasts sound like? You know, not every game is going to be the most exciting game ever. You're going to have twins and pirates on like a Wednesday afternoon in front of no fans. Uh, it, it's it's a fascinating thing. And again, if I was in charge of it all, I don't necessarily know uh, what my thoughts would be. I, I see both sides of like the piping and crowd noise argument. 
Um, as, as a lot of people have said, and as somebody who does play by play, you do rely on that crowd noise. You know, you do pause and allow that to kind of fill the space a little bit without being able to do that. It would be at minimum uncomfortable. And, and as you both kind of mentioned, you're going to have to come up with, with some other stuff to do. So point of order, Jesse, before you move on, did I hear Bob Scanlon, one of the most erudite ball players I've ever met, one of the most well-spoken, grammatically correct people that I have ever encountered in baseball, use the word funner. Possibly. I'm not gonna say it didn't happen. It's live, man. Things happen. I spent a lot of time in the dugout. I'm not gonna say I'm a grammar expert. <laughs> you're pretty good, Bob. I've 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 noticed you're pretty a accurate. Lot of, a lot of funner times in dugouts over the course of my career that I've you know just you can take the guy out of the dugout, but you can't take the dugout out of the guy, that type of thing. Yeah, <laughs> hey, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. My, my, my thing with words is like, as long as people know what you're saying, then it's okay. I mean, that's, it's live broadcasting. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome, Bob. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, when I woke up this morning, I certainly did not expect to reference uh, not one, but two uh, games between the Orioles and the White Sox. But uh, that's exactly what we're going to do. That last one without any fans was five years ago in 2015. Uh, but if you go to the south side of Chicago, old Comiskey, uh, on this date in 1988, uh, some history, if you can call it that, was made. Uh, same two teams, different location. The Orioles beat the White Sox at Comiskey that day. Why was that interesting? Well, have a listen. Ground ball, this should be it. Stanisek, make sure he's got it. And ladies and gentlemen, at 21, the streak is history. Oh, and 21. That was the Orioles record going into that game when they finally beat the White Sox to get off the schneid. The worst start in Major League history. First of all, it looked like a miserable night in Chicago. It's got masks and cold and gloves and everything like that. Uh, I, I, I cannot imagine, Bob, 0-21. No, I remember a 13-game losing streak one time with the Milwaukee Brewers, and that was excruciating. By the time we got to loss number four or five, we were starting to have player-only meetings and – you know, guys were doing different things. They were changing up their eating routines and trying to look for the lucky charm. And we were looking for Joe Boo to try to, you know, get some magic potions going. Go to the voodoo if you have to. But 0-21 is absolutely excruciating. And what's interesting is there's so many things that you can start to look at in terms of the psychology of that team and what's going on. I thought it was interesting that in after game number six, Cal Ripken Sr., who had been the manager of that ball club since 1954, I think it was, he's fired. So as a player, you know, I'm responsible for getting a baseball icon fired and players start putting more and more pressure on themselves. And it just becomes the snowballing thing. But, oh, in 21, that's excruciating. Yeah, I don't I, I had never had to live through that, so I can't really add much to in 21. It sounds even from a fan perspective to be pretty horrific because, you know, the season's over after 20. I mean, there's no way to come back from that. So you're less than a month in and, you know, your team's just done for the rest of the year. That's that's punishing. A 21-game losing streak at any point in the season would be beyond miserable. To do it right at the start, obviously, historically. So here you go. The worst starts in Major League history. We mentioned that one is the worst. Uh, they lost games to Milwaukee, Cleveland, the Royals, and the Twins before finally beating the White Sox on this date in 1988. 1997, Cubs started 0-14. So, I mean, that's a full week's worth of games difference. Uh, between the Orioles and the Cubs, the, the two worst starts in Major League history. 
Tigers, <laughs> 82 years apart, uh, had a couple of miserable opens to their season. Uh, the 88 Braves and the 68 White Sox each started 0-10, uh, which, again, even 0-10 sounds terrible. I guess, Ben, my question to you right now would be, can you imagine social media in April of 1988 in Baltimore? Oh, my gosh. The hashtags. The, the hashtags alone would be just devastating to a team like that. I mean, they're just how could you ever get your confidence back after a start like that? And then again, would be one of the greatest stories in baseball if you could have a start like that and then bounce back. Remember the Washington Nationals? They didn't start, you know, 0-14 last year, but they certainly had a pretty um, – pretty miserable April into May to start yeah. their season and they ended up winning the world series. So I love comeback stories. It's just, um, Oh, and 14 or Oh, and 21 is really hard to come back from. Especially the social media topic, because you look back and they still have some quotes from some of the players back then. And I think after game number three, loss number three of that season, Tom Needenfewer is saying, we've got to turn this thing around right now. <laughs> you know? And you look back on it, it's like, Tom, you're going to be waiting a little while. Sorry about that, buddy. So, and yeah, it would, it would be really rough on the social media aspect. No, yeah, no two, question about it. Two and a half, three weeks is a long time to have to wait for, for something like that. You got to be careful when you make those comments. Uh, also, by the way, with, with all of that kind of going on in the background, there were real concerns about the Orioles leaving Baltimore. Remember, the Colts had left not long before that to go to Indianapolis. So they were kind of a town already scorned. The ballpark situation wasn't great. It would, of course, turn out to be great in the long run. Uh, but kind of one of the neat postscripts of that story was uh, the town kind of created this like grassroots effort to rally around the team when they got back to Baltimore. They ended up packing the place. It was kind of a rally for the Orioles uh, to show city leadership, to show the team, hey, we still care about you. We still love you, even at Owen, whatever. And uh, that was credited, at least in part, uh, to being able to help the Orioles stay in Baltimore. There were talks of going to Washington or to Florida or to Arizona, places, of course, that would eventually get their own teams. Uh, so that's a, a nice silver lining, I guess, in the rest of the story as it relates to that. All right, so we're doing a lot. Yes, Bob, sorry. Just one question for Ben. Is it safe to say it's funner to win than to lose? It is funner to win than lose, Bob. Much funner. Yeah, funner. On the head right there. <laughs> Uh, so, yes, much uh, this date in baseball history, uh, both there uh, with the Orioles and the White Sox, kind of odd that it was the exact same matchup both times. Uh, this date, though, in human history, also a, a pretty good one. Forty years ago today, the very first wish granted by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They obviously do extraordinary work internationally, uh, particularly here in our community. And uh, this was kind of neat. Uh, John Cena narrating a video to help celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. For 40 years, you've helped Make-A-Wish make the stars align. Because when we come together, hope and joy will shine. Together, we've granted more than 500,000 wishes for children fighting critical illness. But we're not done. Help us make every wish come true. Wish.org. And earlier today, very happy to be joined by Chris Sitchell, who's the head of Make-A-Wish San Diego. We talked about what's going on here in town these days with Make-A-Wish. Chris, thank you for taking the time to talk to uh, Boy, what a, a tremendous organization, not only here in San Diego, but uh, throughout the, the world, basically. And just incredible work being done. So happy anniversary uh, to Make-A-Wish 40 years uh, for the program. How many here locally in San Diego? So this program in San Diego started 37 years ago. We were one of the early chapters formed. Uh, the first 
wish was actually 40 years ago today. Wow. Uh, incredible uh, anniversary and milestone to celebrate here with the wonderful work that's been done. Uh, numbers wise, worldwide, locally, I mean, how many kids are we talking about here who yeah. have had you know, these dreams come true? Well, in San Diego, almost every day a child is diagnosed with a critical illness. So we're talking 300 plus kids every single year in San Diego who are going to qualify for a wish. And thanks to the generosity of the community, no child waits here. Across the country, we'll probably grant 17,000 wishes this year and across the world, multiples of that. So uh, the power of hope is alive and well throughout the world. Wow, that's beautiful. How about right now? Obviously, the world is a different place than it was just a, a couple of months ago. How active are you guys able to be? Yeah, great question. Um, I think like most other organizations, we are adjusting. So we are working remotely, of course, but that's not stopping our communications with kids. Kids are still getting sick. They're still getting referred to us. And so we're working on the wishes today that we know that we can grant that say don't involve travel. So we're focusing on those wishes today. Uh, interestingly, just had a conversation with an epidemiologist earlier this afternoon. We're learning all sorts of things that we never knew we needed to know uh, about when we might be able to resume some of our travel wishes and theme parks. So the future is bright. Uh, we're adjusting right now. We're getting ready. And I think you'll see many, many waves of kids getting wishes uh, just shortly down the road once once we have uh, less social distancing needed. Yeah, well, it's good. You get the queue ready to go and you can be organized, I guess, in advance. You just have to wait to execute the plan. Uh, what's the process like? Obviously, no family ever you know, wants to be in a position where uh, they're, they're going to call you. But when they do, maybe take us through a little bit what, what it's like you know, from a parent standpoint and a kid's standpoint to go through the process. Yeah, well, our number one partner in Make-A-Wish, and it has been since day one, is the medical community because they are really the experts. They know which kids are going to qualify who have these conditions that are critical in nature. So we rely on the medical community to talk with the family when they know the time is right. And it's probably not the day they were diagnosed. It's probably gonna be once they catch their breath, they understand what they're up against. And then Make-A-Wish becomes an important part of that treatment process. So when a child is referred to us, the first thing we do is go right out and um, we confirm eligibility with their doc. That's a very fast process, same day. And then we sent two volunteers to go meet with them. And those volunteers' job is to get to know that child and to start exploring what that child dreams about. And then the wish process begins. Each wish takes probably nine or 10 months on average to grant, not because it takes that long to grant, but because we're dealing with, with medical care and oftentimes long treatments and only small windows when things can be done. So we work in partnership with the medical community what we hear from parents, especially, is that they were in one of their darkest times. And then all of a sudden, Make-A-Wish came in and they could see light. You know, they could see that tomorrow had some hope to it. And that's really what our business is, Jesse. Is we're in the hope business. And there was also a study done a couple of years ago that showed that kids who get wishes versus those who don't, they spend less nights in hospital, fewer ER visits, and often get back to life faster. So that's the power of hope. And so that's why I wish is not just nice to have, it's something you need to have. And the medical community sees that as, a, as an essential part of the treatment process. Maybe the most important question I'll ask you tonight, and I'll ask it two different ways. How can we help? Uh, I'll, I'll ask it the first way right now with things being as they are. And then, you know, when a return to normalcy occurs, if, if we want to get into volunteering and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, thank you for that. 
the Padres and the whole Padres community has always been very, very supportive of the organization, going back to when we had wishes uh, on occasion to be Padres. And just, my goodness, just the support from the fans has been amazing. So one of the things that we always need is financial support. And shocker there, every organization needs that. But the truth of the matter is that more and more kids are being referred to us right now. And so when we get going, we're going to need to get going quickly. So there's many ways that people can donate. They can donate their car. They can donate their boat. They can donate airline miles. Those are all things that that help us make wishes happen. Uh, from a volunteer standpoint, we have windows of opportunity throughout the year where we invite new volunteers in and they help with everything, anywhere from helping in the office to granting wishes. No, uh, great information. People can find it at Wish San Diego on social media and obviously on the website as well. Uh, I know some cool baseball ones uh, over the years here in San Diego with uh, the Padres partnering with you guys as much as we do. I've seen it, you know, at Petco, that sort of thing. Any neat baseball memories stand out for you in your 15 plus years? Oh, I mean, we've had a, we've had a few really amazing wishes going back to, you know, Jake Peavy, um, you know, spending a day with a wish kid. And I think the most recent one that most of Padres fans are going to remember, it was just uh, a couple of years ago was Levi who wished to be a Padre for a day. And it was a magical day and it still continues to be uh, the way the team really came around him and his family and the way that the fans did. I think that was the number one Instagram and Twitter situation ever for the Padres. So it was very, very exciting to know that this community cares deeply and that the Padres do too. I remember it very, very well. Uh, Happy anniversary to make a wish. Chris, thank you so much uh, for everything you do in this community for these kids. There you go. Looking good in the brown and gold. Go Pod. Let's play baseball. (laughs) Great to see you. Thank you so much. Chris Sitchell of Make-A-Wish San Diego, just absolutely uh, stellar work in this community uh, that they're able to do. Appreciate him joining us. And again, happy anniversary uh, to Make-A-Wish. Well, one of the benchmarks of the summer uh, in the baseball world, at least, of course, is the Hall of Fame induction ceremony and the uh, surrounding celebration up in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, This probably shouldn't come as any surprise right now, but it did become official today uh, that there will not be one in 2020. Uh, reported earlier today, the ceremony has officially been postponed to next year, uh, hopefully at least 25th of July, 2021. So the folks uh, who are to be enshrined this July, Jeter, Marvin Miller, Ted Simmons, Larry Walker, uh, will go in with uh, anyone who may or may not, or I guess who may be inducted uh, in 2021. So you have a super class next year. And then again, scans, no surprise uh, whatsoever. But this one, uh, to me at least, it was like another reminder or another good example of just like, what a situation we're facing right now. No question about it. That's one of the things that as baseball fans, we so look forward to. I don't know about you, Jesse but and Ben, but I love hearing those speeches. And some of them get long and some of them get a little rambling at times. But at the same time, you're hearing guys at the most pinnacle moment of their careers in terms of being honored and entering this fraternity that so few players get a chance to be a part of. It's something that guys just dream about. And to have that finally come true, it's really special to see that. And I love being out there. And you see the players do the same thing. They have on the big board during batting practice, the speeches that are going on in the induction ceremony and all the players from both teams are looking up there and they're hearing names of of players being mentioned that they'd played with or coaches that they'd had. So it, it's a great bonding experience for all of Major League Baseball. And it's a it's a real shame that we don't get a chance to enjoy it this year, especially with some of the names that are on this list. For me, Derek Jeter, who's been such a classy representative 
of the game in so many ways. But, you know, when you look at it, you've got 38 Hall of Famers that are above the age 70, 19 of them that are 80 years old or above. You just you can't take that risk, unfortunately, right now. But wow, what what an incredible ceremony it's going to be next year, right? With all those big names on there. And uh, who knows, it might surpass the numbers that we saw with Cal Ripken and our very own Tony Gwynn getting inducted. This was an easy call, though, because what makes the Hall of Fame weekend special is the is the packing of that lawn and the fans making the pilgrimage to honor their favorite players, especially in New York with Derek Jeter. Even if under the best case scenario, by the end of July, they had relaxed some restrictions and said, yeah, we can start allowing some fans. Uh, there's no way they would have been able to allow everyone. There's no way everyone would have felt safe uh, going to New York in, in the summer at this point. So this was an easy call. You, you had to do it. And uh, hopefully this allows for another year where they can, Bob, have that big scene uh, with all the Jeter fans and, and the other inductees getting to really enjoy that Hall of Fame experience, doing it virtually, you know, doing it with a third of the fans, it would have cheated anyone who was going to be inducted this year. No question. I agree with you, Ben, 100 percent. And I ask both of you guys, you guys get as much joy out of it as, as I do seeing the old Hall of Famers sitting behind the inductees and you're, and you're seeing, you know, Steve Carlton and, and Willie Mays and, you know, all, all the other great names. I mean, you pick them up, just name after name, and you're just seeing all your heroes up there, and they're all in one place, and you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, this is magical. It's moments like that, guys, because there's a discussion about what is the Hall of Fame. Is it a, just, a, just a museum, or is it something more than that? Does it represent more for Major League Baseball? And when they have that induction ceremony, and I see the greats of the game all sitting there, it, it reminds me that, for me, it still is more than just a museum, guys. Yeah, when, when you get to be a certain age, and you watch that ceremony, you get to see your heroes. You get to see your heroes' heroes, uh, and, and so on as it goes like all in one place. And that, to me, is like a staggering thing as a fan. Uh, you know, my favorite player growing up is sitting up there, and he's being applauded or patted on the back or recognized by a, go, a guy who was a legend, you know, from the previous generation, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the older you get, I, I think certainly the more you appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's just a special thing, even to watch it on television to see uh, those legends and know that they're still they're still out there and they can still get together every year and share their stories. Uh, it must be amazing. Yeah, so to be a fly on the wall, some of those dinner conversations, man, you can only imagine. Uh, so yeah, no Cooperstown celebration this year. Like Ben said, it wouldn't have worked in Zoom. Uh, it would not have worked in Zoom. It would not have uh, been the same thing. Zoom is fine for like, you know, us to catch up with Eric Hosmer here on the show, but uh, I don't know about the Hall of Fame induction. All right. Uh, Drew Pomerantz uh, was an all-star for the Padres back in 2016. And this past November, he signed a new contract with the Padres to return. He had a really, really interesting 2019. He began the year as a starter for the Giants. Things did not go great for him. He was moved to the bullpen. Things started to get a little bit better. Then he was traded to Milwaukee and things went great. For Drew Pomerantz, the velocity went up. He seemed to really embrace his role as kind of a, a late-inning, high-leverage relief arm for the Brewers. He had tremendous success there, and he was brought back to the Padres this winter by A.J. Preller and company uh, to be one of those guys, a high-end, back-of-the-game-somewhere, leverage-type relief pitcher. He's also been doing some great stuff in this community, and earlier today had the opportunity to catch back up with the Padre lefty. Well, Drew, I guess the first thing to say is uh, welcome back. Welcome back to San Diego and welcome back to the Padres. Uh, glad to hear you're doing all right during these interesting times. Let's uh, let's pretend like it's normal for a moment, though. Spring training, how, how is it going? It probably feels like a long time ago at this point. I know it does for me, but but how did you feel out there and how was the baseball going for you? 
Um, yeah, it was going good. I mean, everything was, you know, I was feeling really good. I feel like I just kind of picked up where I left off um, last year. And, you know, it was a good to, good to know because I went on kind of a pretty good streak there. And, you know, you always you know, want to make sure that you are able to pick up where you left off. And I think that's, you know, I kind of fit right back into it once spring training and once the game started and, uh, you know, it was pr- progressing, uh, progressing pretty well. And, um, you know, then obviously we had to, to shut things down for a bit. You were a new Padre in 2016, the new Padre again this year. Uh, mm-hmm. Did it feel like the same place or was it just totally different between the uniforms and obviously the guys in the clubhouse and everything like that? Uh, it was definitely seemed a little bit different. Um, you know, I think there was a, there was a buzz going around there. Um, you know, we, you know, we had as a group kind of gotten the older guys together and started trying to, um, you know, you know, we, we want to create a winning culture there or near here. And, um, you know, we want to win some games. And I think we have a pretty talented group, um, you know, pitching staff, um, offense. Uh, I think we got a it's, – it's definitely a much different group than when I was here the last time. And, um, you know, we kind of all just sat down and wanted to um, you know, try and try and do what we think is right just to help push us in the right direction and just, you know, you know start, um, start winning. Talking a little bit also about last year for you, 2019 – we saw you early in the season, you know, with the Giants, things weren't going great for you. You end up in Milwaukee and basically you're mm-hmm. like unhittable uh, the rest of the year for the Brewers, just stellar numbers, stellar performances, stellar outing in the postseason. I've read a lot about what you said about how last year went from you, but I'd love to hear it from you. What, what clicked, what happened when you made that switch to the Brewers last season? Um, you know, to be honest, I, um, you know, coming in through all-star break, um, you know, I, my velocity and everything had come back from the year before, which is what I was most worried about. Um, and then the results weren't really there uh, starting. You know, even though I'd have some games, I'll start striking some guys out. I made a few adjustments here and there. But, um, you know, going into coming, when we came back from, from All-Star break, I kind of got the sense that I, you know, even though I had been pitching pretty good, like starting June 1st, I, you know, started pitching a lot differently. Um, and I feel like I was kind of moving in the right direction, but, you know, it wasn't really still getting what I wanted out of it. Um, and I got the feeling that it was, you know, there was kind of going to be a bullpen thing going on there. And I pitched one time after, um, I think I had a start in Colorado after all-star break and, um, I, I did really well. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, let's, let's roll with this, but you know, I ended up, uh, they, they get put in the bullpen. I wasn't too happy about it, but you know, I kind of tried to use that, uh, let's call it anger. Uh, <laughs> to, you know, direct it towards when I came, you know, the first time I came out of the bullpen, you know, I was, I wasn't happy. Um, I was pissed, but I tried to use that, you know, in a positive way in, in baseball. And um, that started, you know, my velocity jumped up. Um, my stuff just played up a lot more and uh, started, um, I started striking guys out. Um, it was just kind of, you know, went fastball, curveball, just kind of, kind of simplified things in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, from there I got traded and, you know, I just tried to run with it and try and keep it going as long as I could. And then I went to a team that was in the race. Um, so that was pretty fun, uh, to be a part of it. was, it was a great group we had in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, I, at that point you just, you know, we had a pretty good bullpen, so you don't want to be the guy that screws it up. So I just kept just pushing myself and trying to ride that through as, through the, as long as I could. You mentioned kind of the the anger, your word, not mine, uh, when you yeah. got into the bullpen. Uh, but then you end up having success there. 
I feel like we've heard this story from a million guys, you know, since the mm-hmm. beginning of baseball starters uh, who got moved to the bullpen for whatever reason, they're upset about it. But it seems like in today's game, and I'll push it back, I don't know, the last five, six years or so, there's much more of an understanding and perhaps acceptance of knowing like, all right, like this is important. Starters aren't pitching into the seventh and eighth inning with regularity the way they did for most of the the history of this game. Guys, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, like they, they you were upset last year. I get that. You want to be a starter, yeah. but like, it's easier now, I feel like, to make that switch or, or to understand what's behind it than it's ever been in history. Yeah, I think a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of things you hear nowadays with, you know, the bullpenning and, and you know, things that go along with that is, you know, I think that teams are starting to look at quality more over quantity. So, you know, you go out there and you'd be an average guy for five innings, or do you want to be a guy who's out there for, you know, one inning, you know, maybe two innings sometimes who, who wants to, you know, to dominate people and just have better quality in that short spurt. And I think for me, you know, I, I think I just tried to kind of embrace that role. And, uh, you know, like I said, I wasn't too happy about it at first, but, you know, at some point you just have to kind of realize, you know, this is, you know, this is where my career stayed because it wasn't the first time I'd been in the bullpen. I've done it back and forth, you know, for a few years. Um, but this is, this time it was just different. Um, and you know, like I said, I, I was kind of prepared. I was ready to embrace it after, a, after a few outings. Um, so I just, uh, like I said, I just tried to roll with it. When you uh, showed up to Peoria uh, back in, I guess, February, uh, and you look around and obviously you know, who's on the team, but you, you're seeing Kirby Yates and Matt Strom and Craig Stammen. And I mean, mm-hmm. Emilio Pagan comes in from Tampa this off season. That's a heck of a collection of guys in this bullpen. Yeah, so it's a pretty good group there. Um, even even some of the guys who probably weren't projected to make the team that uh, maybe in, starting in AAA, there's some pretty pretty unbelievable arms there. You know, even you know even with the couple of injuries that we had in spring, uh, I think that we have plenty of coverage there in the bullpen. That's probably our strongest uh, area. We got a lot of depth. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people would agree on. All right, uh, back in San Diego, as we said, after an All Star campaign in 2016. Uh, and you and your wife jumping right back into this community, doing some fantastic work with our uh, mm-hmm. frontline medical uh, folks at UC San Diego, working with the Padres Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what you guys have been able to do. Um, you know, it started out just um, having uh, some communication with the community fund, just, um, you know, talking about putting things out on the Internet, just supporting, you know, to support these people using our platforms to do that, uh, supporting the healthcare workers. And uh, even, you know, first responders in there, too. And, um, you know, I I think we just wanted to do a little bit more. And I've seen kind of this type of thing going on around the league where guys are doing it here and there. I know our ownership group um, did it, uh, donated some food around opening day, I think, at the time. And day is, is what I, I believe I read. Um, you know, I just kind of reached out and said I want to do a little more and asked if there was a need to do some more meals. And they said definitely. Um, so we kind of put started put together um a plan to um you know get some meals for healthcare workers and just you know if to me that's just a more you know it's a bigger thank you than just you know just a shout out on social media like we just wanted to you know really show some appreciation for these people who you know are you know these people are probably overwhelmed sometimes even without a you know a pandemic you know because you know hospitals can be uh kind of hectic but you know right now on top of that you know we just want to you know, we're thankful for everything they do. And uh, we just wanted to show them, show that to them. No, it's stellar work that uh, you and your wife and the Padres Foundation are doing. Uh, Drew's being a little bit modest with it. It was a wonderful donation. 
And uh, what I read was that by, by the time this month is through or the, or the month's worth of meal giving, uh, every frontline COVID-19 worker at UC San Diego Health uh, will have received uh, at least one meal thanks to, to you yeah. and your family and the Padres Foundation. That's stellar work, man. Really, really cool. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Yeah. And uh, hope to see you back out on the mound sooner rather than later. Yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah, We're getting kind of antsy. <laughs> Uh, it's Drew Palmer and it's the Padre lefty. And boy, do we hope uh, to see him back out here uh, very, very soon. Ben had to run off. He's got breaking news to cover for Channel 10. So we'll wrap it up with uh, the scan man. I, I guess to me, the, the most interesting thing about Pomerantz, and we talked about it during spring training, of course, which sadly feels like years ago, but that that mentality, you know, that ability to say, OK, maybe I am best served, you know, pitching as a one or two inning reliever right now. It's not necessarily the way I envision my career going, but hey, the fastball is playing up. The velocity is there. The results are there. It's that sort of maturation thing that we see with some guys. It really is. And it's fun to see it in both phases, which we have now, Jesse. We saw him when he was trying to get himself back established as a starter, a major league starter. And he did that here in San Diego before the Padres traded him to Boston. And it was fun to watch him develop then and gain his confidence back and get himself back into a positive situation. And for him to come now back as a reliever. And I loved your great job with the interview. I loved your question that got the answer of, look, I was angry when I came out of the pen at first and how he was able to direct that anger and not let it distract him. But it, it made him actually pitch better with two things. First of all, his velocity went up, which we see a lot of times out of guys going to the pen. The velocity kicks up, which is fine. But instead of being angry and letting that take control of his ability to make good decisions, he simplified things also with just going fastball. And he mentioned curveball. He talked to me a little bit about the slider in spring training as well. But he simplified things. He found out how he could be effective. And all of a sudden, he's found a great niche for himself to extend his career maybe longer than he ever would have as a starter. So, And he understands the importance now of what he's a part of. I love that he mentioned also that there's just a different attitude, a different vibe in this clubhouse now coming back than when he was here the first time. It's a team designed to win. It's a team that expects to win. And he's excited to be a part of that in one of the most powerful parts of this team potentially being a part of this bullpen. So it, it was great to hear him talk about it. And uh, also great to see him making such a difference in the community and, and helping out all those first responders and, and uh, frontline people at UCSD. Yeah, very, very cool uh, with Drew Pomerantz. Appreciate talking to him. It's good uh, talking to some of these players, and it, it at least brings me into a little bit of a sense of normalcy and and getting to have those conversations, as it does hanging out with you, Scans. Appreciate it tonight, and uh, let's do it again soon. Jesse, it's always a pleasure. I had a great time. Great job with the interviews tonight with, with Chris and Drew, and look forward to talking to some baseball with you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks again to Chris Hitchell of Make-A-Wish San Diego, to Bob Scanlon, to Ben Higgins, and of course to uh, Drew Pomerantz. Thanks also to everybody behind the scenes. And all of you who joined us, we will be doing this tomorrow again at 5.30. And yes, it's a Thursday thing. Don and Mud will be here. We'll have some fun with those two guys as we continue to do this show every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 for, I guess, as long as we have to. Stay safe, everybody. Wash your hands. Hope to talk to you soon. And uh, we'll do it again tomorrow night with Don and Mud.